Hello, and welcome to a roundtable discussion on the Topic of Page podcast. My name is John Mayer. In this episode, I'm joined by guests for a lively conversation on a topic we hope you'll find interesting. In this roundtable discussion, we're going to be talking about the TV show Arrow. We're going to be talking about the first season of that. We have just uh, rewatched the pilot. Yes. We then f- watched what you had edited together. I'm here with my sister. Uh, we're talking about these things, having just watched TV. Um, have rewatched what you had edited together of just the essentially the island sequences for season one, the flashback stuff. The first season of Arrow fascinated me, and I went through to see if my memory basically played a trick on me or if it was accurate because it felt as the season went through that these island sequences were basically in chronological order and made a movie of their own within the season. And I wanted to see how they played as basically an hour and a half movie. Mm -hmm. So I just went and I pulled them out of the various episodes and put them together. And admittedly, it's, you know, nowhere near as good as if the actual producers of the show had, you know, finally edited it with some transitions that were left on the cutting room floor. But it is its own hour and a half movie story arc. It tells a complete story. It's an enjoyable hour and a half. Uh, Ollie has his own evolution, his own growth. I hope that either with leading up to, I, I think they said they got like a five-year plan. So leading up to that fifth season, that what they would do is release some DVDs or a DVD set that has the island scenes or the flashback scenes edited together as mini-movies or episodes. At some point during the summer hiatus, I could see them doing it as a special Arrow movie. Well, imagine, though, if they had these and leading up to the fifth uh, yeah. season, the week before, here's the two-hour thing, the you know, or a couple of weeks before, yeah. just leading up to. Well, and particularly with season one, the power of it for me is that when I went through and I found all these scenes, only one episode did I have to take those scenes and say, you know, this came from late in the season, but chronologically, it was actually them boarding the Queen's Gambit. And should have been the first sequence to the movie. The rest was all just right as it would have happened on the island in order. But I don't think those scenes would have made sense until later in the season. True. So the order they did them in made perfect sense. It was relevant to that episode. But the fact that everything else flowed together in a fairly seamless... There's a little repetition here and there, a couple of callbacks that if it was just a movie in and of itself they wouldn't have needed to do. Mm-hmm. But because it was serialized out over several episodes, etc., they, they, they needed to to play fair or just to help the viewers. Uh, it worked wonderfully. And there's a certain full circle nature I'm anticipating to this. We also watched the uh, some of the behind-the-scenes stuff on the first DVD set. Yeah, we watched two of the specials. One was the creators talking about taking it from the comic book to the screen. And the other was about the stunt work. And both were very well done, very interesting specials. Yeah, no, I I thought it was great stuff. And we also watched off the season two DVD set, the, uh, the season one recap. Yeah, which was a wonderful episode, though. Uh, as when we watched it at the beginning of season two, once again, the narration, which John Barrowman does so well, it threw me because I know it's his voice, but he's not doing it as Malcolm Merlin. In fairness, though, his voice is similar enough. If it had been Paul Blackthorne doing it out of character, he's got a totally different accent than his character of, uh, yeah. of Detective Lance. So that that definitely would have thrown me there. But... This show, I was I was watching a YouTube thing where it was being referred to as, you know, the first of the modern shows. And and I, I hear this use of the word modern, you know, with web browsers and with other things to, to denote things that are kind of current versus just a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. As if we become out of date that fast. But in this case, the guy was um, 
I think it was Emergency Awesome, the, the YouTube channel. He does great stuff. But he was basically differentiating the arrow continuity that's going into the Flash and whatnot from, say, the Smallville and previous TV shows. Mm-hmm. And that this was kind of the, the new era uh, akin to the New 52 reboot in the comics. And totally true. And this is a totally different tone and style and direction than, say, Smallville. But I also don't think this show would have gotten on the air if it hadn't been for Smallville, specifically how Smallville set up Oliver Queen, Green Arrow, and made that kind of a a viable thing in the public's consciousness to some degree. But I look at what they did over the course of that first season, both with how Oliver goes from, as a kid, boarding the Queen's Gambit, who's cheating on his girlfriend with her sister, just a a not-really-up-and-coming guy, you know, to where he is as he's come back of trying to do the right thing for the right reasons, still struggling with that. And it's not until we get into the second season he becomes a hero. I really like those scenes with Diggle, who is an excellent moral compass Mm -hmm. and who points out to him, you have a very narrow description of hero and just confining yourself to the people on this list maybe too narrow a description of what you're trying to accomplish. Now, there are a couple of things about that that I find really interesting. First off, the John Diggle character himself. I love that character. Brilliant character, new for the TV series, has since been pulled into the comic books. And I I go back and forth on, do I want a TV show to be directly from the source material? Do I want them to add to the source material? You know, and TV, it's a collaborative medium, definitely. I think they need to add stuff. And in this case, this is an addition I'm so grateful they made. I think Diggle is a very strong character, and I can't imagine watching the show without him. I think for, and and to use the term modern TV audiences, um, if you didn't have uh, Diggle and, and Felicity, and we'll get to her in a minute, you would have had just Oliver going off on his own doing the the hero thing, and it'd be a very solo character. And I don't think current television viewers particularly want that, or at least that's not what we're getting on like every other TV show. It's more ensemble, more of a team kind of a thing. But even more than that, because of the way Oliver was set up with that single-minded determination and focus, (laughs) Diggle was brought in to balance him. Oh, totally. He he needed other characters both to balance and, and also just for other narrative purposes. You know, Diggle opens his perspective, opens his mind, makes him see other things and aw- creates this awareness that he's oblivious to at times. But in addition to rounding out that aspect of what the character needs for balance, it gives the writers somebody for the characters to be having a dialogue with. Definitely. Otherwise, you're almost stuck with a voiceover narration of why is he going after this guy? What's happening? And we get some of that in the pilot Mm -hmm. because, you know, at this point, Oliver is the character and he needs to set up. He's coming back from the island, you know, and we get the the opening voiceover for, for the pilot. We get a, a, a different one for the rest of season one, then we get another one going forward with season two, and it's it's a cool aspect of the show. But the fact that they added to the mythos with, with Diggle, with Felicity, with really the rest of, of, of uh, Oliver's family and Laurel's to a large degree, but did it in a way that didn't run counter to or violate what had been established in the comics. They're very respectful to that, and tweaking it and figuring out what it takes to make that play on television. Mm-hmm. And the fact, particularly with the the fight scene uh, special that was on the, the first season uh, DVD set, how they're very much trying to... Obviously, they're going to have wire work here and there for when he does a jump across you know, an alleyway or whatever, just because uh, mistakes can happen. They don't want anyone to, like, I don't know, die. They have a stunt double, that stuff. But how they're very focused on having... Stephen Amell do as much of the action stuff as he can and to have everything they're doing be physically possible. Well, and they also pointed out one thing that I had noticed, and especially in the pilot, there's this one jump that Stephen Amell does, and they referred to it as a parkour jump Mm -hmm. over a bar. 
And the moment I saw that when the pilot first aired, I mean, he flies up, he kind of bounces over that bar for a bit more height. And that pose, he's got his legs in. It's like a panel out of a comic book. Well, and they, the, I don't remember if it was the fight choreographer or stunt double that was saying that they're very much using the comics as inspiration, seeing those classic poses that are just like snapshots or whatever. It's like, you know, can we work that in? Yeah. Can you actually hold that pose for long enough for it to be recognizable while doing this crazy kind of a stunt scene? Yeah. And when the stunt double was saying, you know, that he's looked at those panels and noticed the legs will be in a certain position or the arms will be in a certain position and being cognizant of that mm -hmm. as he's doing the jump. And I was thinking, you know. The fact that I have noticed that and I have appreciated it means they've accomplished it and not not overdone it, but they've done it enough that I have appreciated it. Well, it's funny because the comics were the original inspiration that's gone on to the TV show. The TV show has become its own kind of a thing. And it has had I mean, there's the 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 this the pose, the couple of poses that that Arrow does. You know, there's just kind of the, not quite hunched over, but you're looking at him from the back and the shoulders are a little forward or, you know, mm -hmm. the pose I'm talking yeah. about. Very classic one for it. That's come back into the comics. Well, and there was one where he was, uh, I want to say kind of down on his haunches up on the fire escape and the pilot looking a, at a, Laurel. A crouching pose yes. he's got. And that actually could be from comics, not necessarily Green Arrow comics. Because similar sorts of things have been done with Batman and Robin and stuff like that. Yeah, it was just one of those, to me, a classic comic book pose yeah. that they've used. And the fire escape was one of the first times I spied it. I was like, you know, that just looks, especially with Laurel walking underneath on the road and him looking down on it. It felt like a superhero pose to me. It's clear these people are well versed in the comic books, not just in terms of have they read them, have they studied them, but. They understand them. And I think it was also the, um, I forget if it was the, the, the wardrobe guide or production design guy. One of the guys was saying how they're very much trying to keep it grounded in reality and make it seem like something that's not just this fantastical comic booky thing. Mm -hmm. But as a result of that, they, particularly in the pilot, which is part of why I wanted to rewatch that today, they really sold the concept. They did. Yeah. They mentioned the Christopher Nolan Batman films as a definite inspiration. And I could see that in the pilot where we see Oliver setting up the arrow cave or whatever you want to call it mm -hmm. with him uh, uh, putting his, his arrows, sharpening the, the, the arrowheads, that kind of stuff, putting that together because it's very reminiscent of what we got in Batman Begins, but oh. not redundant or not derivative. Yeah, and I liked the seeing him training, kind of the the sense that he didn't feel he'd accomplished everything to get ready before he left the island, but the he keeps training every step of the way. He's staying at top form, not I've accomplished all I need to accomplish to now go on the mission. When we were in Toronto for Fan Expo, we went to the Stephen Amell panel, and one of the things he had said there was how, you know, while he's still training, and we saw a lot of footage over the course of the first season with him training with Diggle and certainly on the island, all that stuff, but really, since the island, he hasn't picked up any new skills, mm -hmm. you know, but there is an aspect of he is a, a, a peak human athlete who needs continual training and exercise, et cetera, to stay in that kind of a shape, but I think that was also... What's making the show work mm -hmm. is it's showing you got to work at it to get to this kind of crazy level. It's a conceivable level. Yes. You know, the, the stunt guys were saying how they're scouring the net at times for cool parkour moves or things like that that they can try to incorporate just to keep it fresh, keep it kind of organic or whatever. And how it's just they, they sell the concept, they sell the reality of it. And it's truly a team effort because you've got the writers setting up. It's like, okay, this is a, a good reason for fight, a believable thing, whatever. Fight choreographers who who have a, and Stephen Amell said this at the panel, punch with purpose. Yeah, he he made the comment that just like when you're acting and I say, I love you, you, you say it with dedication and with meaning and with purpose. You don't just mumble, I love you. 
and you punch with that same dedication and purpose. And having a lead actor who gets that. Yeah. Who really throws himself into the work physically and stuff and has gotten into the kind of shape to do some of these crazy parkour moves and whatnot. Um, I mean, there are a couple of places it's like, yeah, they for this one against the, you know, 18 foot, you know, uh, alleyway and so many foot drop. Yeah, they probably used a stunt double for that. Why wouldn't they? Yeah. But then for some of the other stuff, it's like, no, no, he's doing that. And it's it's you can intellectually say, oh, I bet this is where they've switched. But I'd be hard pressed to name any place where I've watched it uh, thinking, yeah, they, 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 they really, you know, they didn't pull that off. They, they used went to the stunt double. It was so obvious. It's like, no. Yeah, they they do an excellent job with it all. And one of the things they were saying in one of the specials was, you know, the writers, they come up with just everything they can think of to come up with. And at one point, I guess it was in one of the Vertigo episodes, uh, they wanted to have a girl dancing in the club. Yeah. And then she goes out into traffic and gets hit by a car and one of the fight coordinators said okay you need to cast one of our stunt people who's capable of acting in the dancing scene let's find a stunt person who can do the rest of that role because it's not much it's dancing and looking pretty yeah and can do the getting hit by the car so it's the same person doing it to really sell that yeah and i remember when we first watched that it's like wow yeah yeah, and, you know, the guy from the writing room comes back on, and he's like, you know, we hadn't thought of the whole somebody might get swapped out and how would it look. But when the fight guys were like, yeah, we can have one person do all of this and there'll be no swapping, we were like, oh. They seem to have a really good give and take between the writers, the uh, fight choreographers, uh, mm-hmm. the actors. Um, the one thing I wish the special had kind of touched on, because I'm curious about this aspect too, location scout. Yes. Because I've got to imagine that really plays into what you can and can't do for a fight scene. And, I mean, they've got great locations. They're doing just terrific work. And it's it, it is fundamentally changed the way Green Arrow is being used and depicted in the comics. Well, and one of the interesting things that they said was that they call it Arrow for a reason. They view this as the character growing and evolving and eventually becoming Green Arrow. I, I think their end game, based on that comment, is in that final episode, the final bit we get on the arc, and they said as much, is Oliver seeing the boat, same mm-hmm. thing we see in the pilot that starts yeah. it off. That goes full circle. So now we followed the island sequence from beginning to end. That takes us to the beginning of the series for the modern day stuff. Move that to beginning to end. And the end of that is going to be, and I don't know exactly what it is, but it's going to be the equivalent of what we got in Smallville where he puts on the Superman suit and flies off. Yeah, it'll it's be the, a, He's now the hero. It'll be a defining moment. And I really think... Season one was wonderful in Arrow in terms of Oliver did a lot of maturing and growing, both mm-hmm. on the island and in uh, Starling City. And one of the things I love about Arrow, and I kept praising it for as we watched it when it aired, was as someone who hasn't read the comic books, they built the world for me. They told me everything I needed to know. Yeah. They didn't take for granted that I knew anything. Well, it's interesting because this series started a little after the new 52 reboot of the DC Universe in 2011. That was in September. Figure there's a little bit of a lead time for that. Obviously, there's some lead time for a TV series. But the direction DC Comics went with for the relaunch of Green Arrow was very super heroic, very bright colors. Um, whereas, for lack of a better, more of a Superman take on it, if you will. Okay. You know, it's, it's daylight. He's the, the vibrant, happy hero versus the other end of kind of that conceptual spectrum of where the TV show kind of gravitated towards more of a Gotham City Batman dark brooding kind Mm -hmm. of a thing. Well, yeah, he's definitely inspired by his father and those moments on the raft, if you will. Well, there's so many moments in or aspects of Arrow 
that draw very direct parallels to Batman. They're both rich, they're both trained to perfection, they had a defining moment involving the death of a parent mm-hmm. right in front of them getting shot. You know, mm-hmm. it happens very differently and at different points in life, etc. Um, they go through a training regimen and stuff, not necessarily by choice in Ali's case, but there's enough parallels. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, this is more of the Batman. I mean, he's a street-level hero anyways. It's obvious he's more the Batman type than the Superman type. But what was fascinating with the comics is because of the reception of the TV show and the fact that, because I remember when it, the, the pilot was first airing, it's like, yeah, of course I'm going to check it out. But, you know, a guy with a bow and arrow in a modern day city, I, I, I don't know if they can pull that off. Yeah, they, they totally proved me wrong. They, they obviously did pull it off. Huge success, enough to do a spinoff series with The Flash. And we'll mm-hmm. get to that in a, a minute. But around issue 17, 18 of the comic books, so this would be 18 months after uh, September uh, 2011. So that'd be March 2013-ish. Uh, Jeff Lemire comes in and starts shifting the book very, very seriously and very drastically to references of the island. Mm, mm-hmm. A darker tone with the new artist that comes in. It's a much more almost noir style of comic versus... The uh, uh, kinetic, happy-go-lucky, roller coaster, bright colors, you know, colorful sky kind of a mm-hmm. storytelling. Yeah, you know, it's more brooding, it's more slow moving, it's it's more. You've got the 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 silhouettes at the right places, the hood, the the whole thing. It was very much where they had been going, just hadn't panned out. Arrow's working. Let's bring that in, mm-hmm. and to the point of of bringing in writers from the TV show. Matter of fact, I think some of the creators are now going to be writing the book, uh, the comic book, and stuff. So, it, it's totally proven out the approach they've taken. John Diggle has entered the comic book world. Yeah, um, Felicity and I'm glad. Smoke can't be that far behind. She is another excellent character, and I mean, I'm I happen to love the way she babbles on the show. It cracks me up. It's a great comic relief. The character was really good. The actress. Yes. She sells it. She sells it. She pulls it off. She is what has made that character. Mm-hmm. And Definitely. if you think about it, the two supporting characters for, for Arrow, the hero, are so popular, so well-defined, and so accepted mm-hmm. that certainly John Diggle's already been pulled in. I'm expecting Felicity Smoke to get pulled into the comics. Um I don't know what more sign of success there is. Yeah. Prior to those two, the one I would have to go back to in the case of DC Comics for a character to have come out of the TV and movie realm so successfully to get a comic is, is Harley Quinn mm. from the Batman animated series. So it, it, it's not often you have new characters that really kind of come and, and, and work like that. Um, so that's, that's been a lot of fun. Well, and Felicity, she's the confidant that Oliver needed. She's the confidant. She's the humor. Mm-hmm. She's the, the regular person. Mm-hmm. Yes, she's a super IT whiz. I get that. But she sees almost the ludicrousness at times. Yeah. And it allows them to do some moments in the show that I don't know how else they could have pulled off. I mean, at one point, and I I forget if it was first or second season, so forgive me if I... I slip on that, but um, she had redone the headquarters. Yes, that was in first season. Okay, good. Mm-hmm. Uh, new computers, new high-tech stuff, kind of a hope you don't mind, Ollie, but I fixed it up. And the, uh, what's called the salmon ladder, whatever mm-hmm. he does the pull-ups on, it's like she left that. Mm-hmm. And she makes this comment of, yeah, I kind of like watching you do that sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. And it was an incredibly sexist <laughs> comment. But it was in for all us girls. It was hilarious. And it it's nice to almost see that kind of a, 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 a turnaround in so much as it's so common for comic book comic books and both the movie and TV to do the objectification of women. Mm-hmm. And the way they sometimes do that with the objectification of, of Oliver is, yeah. is hilarious. Um, yeah, because you will occasionally just catch her glancing over and watching him exercise. And it's the, you know this is happening. But it's also... One of the things that out of everything they did in the pilot, when you've got this one shot of, of 
of this actor who's doing a pull-up, grabs the bar, throws it up another couple of inches to the next place to hook it onto. Rinse, repeat, like six times. Yeah. It's like, okay, they're not cheating on this. He's in damn good shape. I am impressed. Yeah. When you can see the full body from above the head to below the toes and know this is all his strength. Well, and there was one or two other shots uh, where he's doing a, a like a handstand push-up kind of a thing. Yeah. And they pull back and see, yeah, his feet are resting on a wall. It's like, we're doing this realistic, guys. You know? Yeah. Yeah, he's really doing this. They play fair. They have fun with it. They take aspects of the audience reaction. Because I think the Sam and Leonard was very much, a lot of people, it's like, wow, okay. You know, and, and, and play that back into the show. Mm-hmm. And again, Stephen Amell um, at, at Fan Expo was saying how he had fans had told him, oh, whatever happened on the line if you have failed the city? He brought it back to the writers. Oh, yeah, it was a season one thing. He's like, oh, really? You know, and they're bringing it back into the show because it's, it's yeah. a signature iconic part of the show. Well, and in season one, that was fantastic. And that was one of those things. I mean, it was almost a Bookum Dano from yeah. Hawaii Five-0. Yeah. And we were talking about the fact that in season one, he was very focused and on that list, and he was going after the specific individuals, you know, and when we get to season two, we'll see that his mission was different. His goals were different. And, and we'll talk yeah. about season two in but another episode. I really did like the you have failed this city and those aspects to his approach in season one. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking forward to season three and finding out what balance he finds. Well, the other thing that's fun about the show for comic fans, and I know this is something that, you know, as we're watching this either on DVD or normally when we watch it, we do it on a DVR type system where it's like oh, we can pause and talk. There are a couple of times I will pause the thing. It's like, okay. The, the Ted Cord they just mentioned as there's a, a fundraising benefit or whatever. He's Blue Beetle. Turns out they can't use him for this show because DC has other plans. Mm. But uh, actually what they were going to do for third season, I think, was uh, – and they're going to go with uh, Ray Palmer, the Atom, instead, is they were going to use Ted Cord for that. Mm. So it's like, okay, can't do that. Tweak. Yeah. We do. But pulling in references to that – to Ferris Aircrafts from Green Lantern, um, to the Royal Flush Gang, obviously Terminator, which is going to be interesting because there's talk of a Teen or not a Teen Titans, but a Titans show live action. And one of the main bad guys for that is Terminator, mm. Deathstroke. Uh, so he's used on Arrow. They may not be able to use it because that'll be, I think, on TNT or whatever. But anyways, the fact that they're bringing in uh, uh, the, the League of Assassins that Malcolm Merlin's attached to. Mm -hmm. They brought in Argus, uh, Deadshot. Um, who else? Uh, China White. China White, uh, which is, a, you know, ver that one's very much a, a, a green arrow kind of a character as is Vertigo. But Deadshot is more of a Batman villain who went okay. into Suicide Squad. They're bringing in Suicide Squad stuff. They've spent a lot of time in the first season planting seeds, Huntress, expanding mm -hmm. the the world here. Mm -hmm. And for a show that is set in flashback on an island and in the present day in a particular city and really a small subset of that city even, for yeah. the most part, the Glades... Uh, uh, the the Queen Mansion in Queen Consolidated is where the majority of stuff happens. Mm -hmm. um, they've done so much world building. Yeah, and I think that was what really impressed me. Mm -hmm. That they did all that world building, and like I said, they give gave me all the information I needed to know as someone who had no clue coming in. So I was never left begging you to pause and fill me in and tell me what am I missing. Right. They give Easter eggs. Whenever they give a Ted Cord kind of a thing and don't explain it, it's because it doesn't matter. Yes. Whenever they give something that does kind of matter. I mean, the fact that the guy who tortured uh, Oliver on the island was was Billy Wintergreen, um, Will, uh, William Wintergreen, which was De uh, uh, Slade Wilson's kind of confidant, his Alfred, if you will, in the comics, doesn't matter. It's a nice Easter egg for those of us who kind of get it and know. 
But they do tell us that Slade and Billy Weirgreen came to the island together and that Billy was the godfather of Slade's son. So Exactly. You you get the relationship, the importance, the connection there. Yeah. The fact he, he was Wintergreen, you know, the name is irrelevant. But the mention of his son Joe, yeah. who is a Titan, Jericho, um, I doubt they'll ever do anything with, but it would be nice to see that character over in the Titans show if they get that off the ground. And maybe there's a connection to this, maybe there's not, maybe they allude to it, they can't say it, whatever. The fact that this production team is doing such a brilliant job realizing the comic book world in live-action primetime mm-hmm. television mm-hmm. is amazing. Yeah. Um, with them spinning off to The Flash, introducing the concept of super speed and the other characters over there that they've got, you know, planted. You know, they've they've mentioned the future for Firestorm, a Killer Frost, probably Vibe, um, a bunch of others. The one I want to see in a future season of Arrow, and this this would be tough for them to pull off, but I'm sure they can, is Hawkman. Mm-hmm. Because in the comics... The characters most associated to Green Arrow, uh, Roy Harper, who they've got and they've mm-hmm. done a great job with, gone in a different direction with the second season than I expected, but they set him up well here in the first season. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, Huntress, not so much uh, in the comics, but um, Green Lantern, mm-hmm. they shared a title for a while. Uh, but then in the Justice League stuff, you had the polar opposites almost on the political political spectrum of Green Arrow and Hawkman. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, Green Arrow very much for the people and that kind of a stuff, street level. Hawkman, who literally flies above everybody, is is more of the, the not quite socialist or fascist, but that's what he was often called by, by Green Arrow. And having Carter Hall, an archaeologist, come into to Starling City and, and maybe, you know, whatever, there's a lot that could happen there just as a very uh, interesting dynamic. Mm-hmm. But again, bringing in... Uh, uh, Deathstroke the Terminator, so strong, so well. Yes, they changed from the comics. He trained Ollie on the island and stuff. Well, in rewatching those island scenes today, I was reminded, and I'd kind of forgotten, that Slade Wilson, I mostly remembered Slade as training him and being mm-hmm. kind of a mentor to Ollie on the island. I'd kind of forgotten that Slade got to the island, and when his mission didn't go as planned, it was, ah, Yao Fei's on his own. That was kind of interesting, because I get that he's a mercenary. I get he's... Not no, so- he was with the Australian... He was an Australian You're right. spy. He wasn't even a mercenary in the show. He is... Uh, page, he, he's a, a soldier for his, his country. Yes. So that's why I was disappointed in Slade as a person. It, in other words, his moral compass was not as strong as I had recalled it being well, not only in that, season one. His financial compass wasn't the goal or the, the steering force either. Because if he'd been strictly a mercenary and it's like, well, I was paid to do this yes. and I'm not going to do it, break his word, that is more from the comics, really, is oh, what I I'm see. thinking. Um, because he had his own series with the new 52 that lasted, I don't recall how long it was not one of the first round of cancellations, but maybe the third or fourth, second or third. Anyways, he's getting a series again, I think based on the strength of this show. Interesting. Well, in the end of the island scenes, what I got out of today, which I had forgotten was that Slade could have gotten on that supply plane and left. Yes. But he left the airfield to go get revenge on Billy Wintergreen. I was reading it more as he went to go help out Ollie because he knew the kid would get himself killed otherwise. That's how I read it when we first watched it, too. But when I was just watching all the island scenes back to back to back to back, he showed up and he didn't seem to really care where Ollie was. He just went straight to fight Billy. (laughs) Fair point. Fair point. Um, he didn't even care where Yao Fei was at that point. Eddie Fries, who's who's the the main mercenary bad guy on the island. I don't recall if we ever found out who he was hired by. I never figured out who he was hired by. He talked to a man, and then there was a woman in high heels. Now, in fairness, we haven't rewatched the whole first True. season again. True. So they may have revealed that, and I just... We I, may have forgotten. Yeah, we may have missed it, but... But in the comics, he was a mercenary... In the Green Arrow comics, when Connor Hawk was Green Arrow, because at one point they killed off Oliver Queen, 
Mm. And his son, uh, who really hadn't been known of before, takes over for a while. And that's actually, I think, where they pull some of the, like in the pilot where he's giving the arrowhead uh, in Buddha, this means mm. this mm-hmm. for reconnecting or whatever. Um, the Connor Hawk version of the character was much more spiritually centered, more of almost a pacifist, raised by monks, etc. I don't think they're ever going to pull that character in, but I think they've pulled aspects of him into Oliver. Interesting. Um, Because as they were saying in one of the specials, Oliver Queen is either you get that that 20-year-old who's just starting, or he's usually that 40-year-old or whatever. Mm -hmm. So they went somewhere in the middle, and he's got enough life experience, but isn't the old jaded guy. Mm Mm-hmm. And again, you get that, that 40s uh, Green Arrow, and that's the old jaded guy who's constantly bickering with, with Hawkman. That's the fun dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and in rewatching the pilot, uh, I was reminded where Tommy Merlin began the season. Yeah. And, uh, and where he ended the season. Yes. And again, great actor, great character, great aspect mm-hmm. of the show. What got me rewatching the pilot was not only reminding myself of where these characters had started, but how a couple, uh, the mage for the queens, yes, really well used, and yeah. then just vanishes as far as I can recall. Yeah, you know. Um, well, and we watched the deleted scene from the pilot, which was a really fun one between mostly between Diggle and uh, Oliver. Um, where Moira tries to fire Diggle. Yeah, it starts with Moira saying, you lost him again, What you know, you're fired type thing. And, and Oliver jumping in, no, no, it's all my fault, here's what happened. And we yeah. have an understanding. The, the, again, the dynamic between Oliver and Diggle, particularly in the pilot, yeah, uh, was, was fascinating. And how that, that relationship grew. Mm-hmm. The writers on this have... A really good sense of what they're doing, where they're going, and how to get there. Yeah. And it's not just, wow, they've got a great plan. They're executing on it really well. Yeah. Well, uh, when Felicity uh, meets Ollie at, I forget, I think it's the burger place where he's sitting at mm-hmm. the bar, and she walks up to him and says, you know, can I trust you? And he's just kind of looking at her like, where does a question like that come from? And she says, because you've dropped some really big lies on me and I've gone with it anyway. But Well, some ridiculous ones. The bullet yeah. shot, laptop, etc. Yeah. Well, the sports I, drink and a syringe. Was it, I forget if it was one of the specials. I think it was the, the season one recap when they're dealing with, with her. And you just get the sequence of completely ludicrous things. Oliver has gone up to her and says... You know, can you can you look into this? Yes. You know, ah, it's a sports string. And she's like, then why is it in a syringe? Yes. You know, I spilled some coffee on it. These look like bullet holes. It's in a bad neighborhood. You know, it the mm-hmm. the, the the not even the blatant lies, but the you've got to be kidding me level of lies. Well, and as I recall, at one point there was a scene where uh, Oliver and Diggle step into an elevator, and Diggle just kind of looks at him and says, you know, at some point. She's going to catch on. and Yeah, there, there's a line of basically you've got to come up with better excuses. Yeah. That this is embarrassing man kind of a thing. Yeah, and I remember just loving that scene of just own it, writers. I love you for owning this. But that's part of why you need a character like Diggle. Yes. Is so you've got somebody who can quietly point out as the elevator doors are closing. Dude. <laughs> Yes. Your game sucks in whatever yes. shape that is. Yes, exactly. Exactly. You know, they, they could have had this show literally be just Oliver. They could have. They, they could have. They could have had Diggle, but not really part of Ollie's life as, as the arrow. They could have had Felicity as just the, the, the tech person who answers questions and no more. They could have had it focused more as just on the solo character. But I don't think it would have worked anywhere near as well because it's it's having these other characters as foils, having the interaction, having the dialogue between them. They're what make it a fuller, more three-dimensional world. Yeah. They've created a community and it's so much more fun. You know, Thea changed throughout the first season, mm-hmm. which when we first met Thea, especially in the pilot... 
I wasn't really sure where are they going to go with this 17-year-old who's dabbling in drugs because yeah. she's rich and feels like she's been neglected by well, mom. She and- had been neglected. She had a rough childhood. And and when they pull that out in the pilot where she's like, you can't judge me, Oliver. You know, you and dad died. Mom yeah. kind of withdrew. I, I had nothing. Yeah. You know, and the fact that there's so many aspects of the show, the writing and the characters that is strictly about what's the emotional arc. Yes. And I think in one of the specials, the writers were basically saying that, you know, for each episode, it's like, OK, what's his arc with, with this character going to be this episode? What What are we hinging on? Can he trust somebody? Do they like each other? Do they, you know, whatever it is. Well, and that the emotion is the central hinge of the episode, not the action sequence being the central hinge. And I think that is a lot of why the audience comes back week after week is because as great as the action sequences are, that's not the first and foremost reason that we tune in each week. I would say one of the defining differences between Arrow and say, uh, certainly Lois and Clark, but, but I would also say Smallville is... Those shows would have the, you know, little babble of action throughout mm. up until the, le- the 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 big action thing at the end where, where Superman goes, does his superpower thing, and that's that. And the rest of it was more plot, more drama, whereas Arrow, the action is, is usually sprinkled throughout. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just one big set piece at the end. And it's not that there's, you know, a little drama, a little stuff like that. It's... Everything that's happening really matters to the characters in some yes. way. Yes, yeah. Sometimes not, oh my God, the world's going to end sort of a thing, but it's got that emotional connection. It's dealing with who can you trust? How has your life changed? Who are you? Yeah. Who do you want to be? And the other shows never really had that. And I would say, well, they're fun and I enjoyed them a lot. They didn't have quite the depth. Yeah. And the the stuff they're mining out of Green Arrow, who arguably is a knockoff of a, of of Batman, you know, is is amazing. And I don't want to just say all oh, the characters lame. is just not. No, it's it, it's something that could be dismissed as such. Mm, mm-hmm. And the fact that they're pulling out so many uh, uh, emotional beats, strong moments, the whole bit with Thea and the pilot and the drugs. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, how could she not be messed up by all of this? Well, it makes sense. And, and building that into the character, and they, brilliant. They start with it as part of the character and they follow the arc. They follow the consequences. And, I mean, this is a CW show. Mm-hmm. And I expect certain things of a show on the CW. I expect it to have plot lines that are relevant to yeah. a teenage and a college audience. And quite frankly, I think that was an excellent plot line. For that age group. Well, they also early on play with Ollie's party boy aspect. They do. And where at times he really plays that up. And they talk about the consequences or show the consequences of when that's your reputation, you don't get taken seriously and other things like that. Well, the fact that there are so many repercussions and consequences and you see how things play out. Yeah. Shows, again, longer-term writing. The fact that with the one episode flashing back to pre-pilot, the flashbacks for all of the other episodes can be played in order and make up its own movie blows me away. I've watched a lot of TV shows that include flashback scenes, and normally they are... Scenes they're in service of the episode they're in, and they flash back to whatever period or sporadic time frame serves the episode they're in. <laughs> they're almost sprinkled throughout the previous timeline. Person of Interest is a good example. Yeah, and I cannot think of any other television show I've ever watched where I could go through a season and just pull those scenes out perfectly as they are in that episode by episode, and just keep them in that order and play them straight through like this. Play them in the order they originally aired. Yeah. And there was one or two where they they go back to the wreck of the the ship a few times Mm -hmm. because it was relevant to a few episodes. But fine. It was even, where it was airing, it was even slightly relevant to the island scene. You could understand why he was remembering being shipwrecked. 
And I don't know how much of that they initially planned out or if it just kind of worked that way or, or, or what. But yeah, so many shows, if you wanted to establish the flashback timeline, you'd have to do some serious, okay, well, when was this supposed to be happening? Let me shuffle this here. Oh, I guess it's the order that goes in. And you'd yeah. have to work out the timeline. Yes. And here it, it played as a very fun hour and a half, two hour kind of deal. Yeah, I I was blown away. It's if they didn't get a writing award for that, they should have. But that's part of why I think they ought to do that, edit themselves, put that out there. Mm-hmm. And again, you do that leading up to like the final season, and you would have a lot of latecomers to the show at that point because they'd be realizing. I mean, imagine doing over the the last half of a summer leading into the final season. A weekly basis, here is the, the Arrow Island movie for season one, then two, then three. And, you know, with, with the later ones, I think they're diving to other characters, so it would yeah. be a little different there. But it, it shows just, again, how much they've put into this. Mm-hmm. And again, the, the number of, of characters they're pulling from the DC Universe, the amount of the DC Universe that they have kind of realized on screen, uh, just uh, again, just in the first season, is is staggering. Yeah, you know they they had plenty they could work with just with with uh, with Oliver with just the Green Arrow mythos, but to be pulling in you know again Deathstroke from from Titans uh, in season two they do Ravager to an extent um, and all of this other stuff it in counterpoint to the Marvel stuff where the movies are doing the universe building. Mm-hmm. And S.H.I.E.L.D., the TV show, is just kind of in, not in service too, but helping to flush that out further, but not really building on it. I watched the first season of S.H.I.E.L.D., and I felt they were taking for granted that I knew the universe it took place in. And constantly I had questions that I needed answered. And that frustrated me because I had already watched the first season of Arrow and I was accustomed to a television show that created the world for me and kind of spoon-fed me all the information I needed to be in this world. Well, and there were one or two places in S.H.I.E.L.D. first season where they do a reveal, um, like the source of what saved Coulson and stuff, and I'm like, you know, I'm sure that's supposed to mean something to me, but I'm not placing it. Mm -hmm. Whereas I don't recall anything in Arrow where it's like, geez, I don't know where that came from, because they're not expecting me to have known this huge backstory. The fact that I know about a lot of the characters they're pulling in is icing on the cake. It is fun. Mm-hmm. You know, when they pull in um, Shrapnel, Vertigo, some of these other lesser characters, it's cool. But if you don't know who they are, in the context of the show, you're not missing a damn thing. Yeah, which I'm grateful for, personally. So I am... Enjoying the show. I think it's really good. I think it deserves the success it's had. And I think it is a large part of why DC has, in the coming TV season, as we record this, uh, Constantine, Gotham, obviously Arrow continuing, Flash starting up, iZombie uh, waiting in the wings for mid-season uh, replacement, I think, on CW, talk of a Supergirl show that hasn't been chopped around yet, a Titans show possibly at TNT, if they can keep up the quality, mm-hmm. um, that they've got a lock of really building their universe well. If they can find a way across the different production companies, channels, and networks and such to build in the threads and get a cohesive universe. It'd be amazing. It'd be astonishing. And yeah. I, I'm not really expecting that. I'm hoping for it. I mean, I would love to see uh, Manu show up as Deathstroke in Titans at some point. It'd, it'd be, be fantastic. It'd be fantastic. I, I doubt it would happen. I do, don't know if it can happen. But, you know, what they have built in a single season starting f- from scratch with a new take on, on Oliver Queen from what had just happened in Smallville not long ago, um, where they've gone, where they've grown, it's it, it, it has been so successful. Like I said, it has fundamentally changed the way DC is handling the Green Arrow comic book. And that's in addition to having had a digital comic based literally on the Arrow show flushing out kind of between episodes and such like that. They're doing a Arrow season 2.5, bridging the gap between the second and third seasons. Um, so they've got their own little thing there. They didn't need to go tweak the Green yeah. Arrow comic to reflect it. 
just for the purpose of having a comic book like Arrow. They had one. So it's uh it's an impressive show they've put together. It's a lot of fun. It's well worth picking up the the DVDs, Blu-rays if you don't have them. I definitely would pick up the DVDs just for these special features that we were watching and to rewatch some of the episodes and see some of those pivotal moments again. Yeah. Well, and just getting the high quality stuff uh, and being able to pause on a few of it and just soak in yeah. some of the effects they do in a few places and whatnot um, is is fun. And yeah, it's uh, I think the way they've done stuff with the universe building and stuff I'm expecting is going to change S.H.I.E.L.D. second season. I think they're realizing, oh, they got to pull some more stuff in. They've got to pay off a little better. They've got to got to be, frankly, a, a little more fun, a little more actiony and a little more, not reverent to the comics, but not uh, reliant. Well, I yeah, I just keep hoping that S.H.I.E.L.D. will give me more, if that makes sense, in terms of Arrow always makes me feel like they've given me everything I need within the episode. And so often when I'm watching S.H.I.E.L.D., I feel like a lot of what I know, I know because I got it from the movies. And that doesn't feel fair. I feel like S.H.I.E.L.D. should be self-contained, and I should know everything I need to know just from watching it. Well, I I don't think it's a matter of, of self-contained so much as accessible. Yes. And Arrow, I think, does a good job when they bring characters back, reminding us who they're bringing back, why. Oh, Deadshot's coming back. He was the one who killed Diggle's brother, Andy. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. here's what's going on with this, all that kind of stuff. To where I think it's it's you could jump in, and I could be wrong on this, but I think you could jump in at almost any episode and understand what's going on, watch it, build some context, build some appreciation for the characters, and then be able to just go forward with that. And you'll enjoy it more and more as you go, because major emotional beats don't matter for characters you just met. Well, they do a good job with their previously on in giving yeah. you the key information. They do. They do. So I'm, again, looking uh, forward to the show continuing. Like I said, at some point we'll do an episode on the second season. Mm-hmm. We may do that immediately. We may not. Don't know. Um, and we're thinking about doing episodes on other television shows and comic book movies and such. Uh, and if listeners have suggestions as to what they would like to hear us talk about, uh, that'd be good to know. Definitely share with us. Anything else? Does that pretty much do it? That does it. Cool. The show notes and forum for this podcast can be found at www.comicbookpage.com under the podcast and forum sections of the website. Please email us at theguys at comicbookpage.com and let us know what you think of what was discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening.